0: Well, um, if you've grown up in church, which uh, many of you may have, like me, then uh, you've probably learned to treat the Lord's Prayer and the Ten Commandments similarly. Uh, That is, they're kind of like these religious relics that we don't always know exactly what to do with, but every once in a while we rub them for good luck. Um, I was on a football team in high school. I chose my words carefully there. I didn't say I played football in high school. I was on a football team in high school. And for some reason, our coach uh, would often give us a verbal lashing and then would ask me to lead the, uh, the team in the Lord's Prayer. Now, I never understood this, neither the verbal lashing nor me leading the team in the Lord's Prayer. I understood the reason for the verbal lashing. We were pitiful. We were awful. I understood that. I didn't quite get the content. Coach would come up with the craziest things. One of his favorite verbal lashings was, you boys are acting like a bunch of cowards, and it's going to end, and when we go back out there, you are going to turn off the lights, lock the gates, hit them naked, hide their clothes. (laughs) What? I just remember sitting there thinking, Now, I had some time to reflect. I had the rest of the half or however long the game was. Um, So the rest of the guys had some things to think about. But I kept thinking, why? Why do we want to turn out the lights? And why are we hitting the other team until they're naked? And, And if for some reason we find ourselves in the awful predicament that we're in a locked, confined environment in the dark with the other team who's naked, why would we want to deceive them about the whereabouts of their clothes? None of that made any sense to me, and it certainly didn't make any sense that we would end it with the Lord's Prayer. But I was scared of the coach, so I always led us in the Lord's Prayer. Um, Well, it doesn't take a theologian to realize that was not the best use of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, That was probably not the context that Jesus, our Lord, intended us to use the Lord's Prayer. But you know, I think we often think about the Ten Commandments very similarly. We really don't know what to do with them. I mean, we are these people who believe that we've been saved by faith, by grace, through faith alone, not through any works of our own. So what do we do with the Ten Commandments? We often treat them kind of like a distant cousin who's a little odd, We know we still have to love them, got to be family, but we really don't know how to do life with them, right? I think that's kind of how we treat the Ten Commandments. Well, it's my prayer this morning that by the end of this morning, if that's the way you feel about the Ten Commandments, I'm hoping you won't see them as a distant cousin when we're finished. I'm hoping you'll see them, to quote Anne of Green Gables, go from football to Anne of Green Gables, I love it, more like a bosom Friend, because to the believer, the Ten Commandments are a bosom friend. They were given to us by God for our help, and they are a wonderful gift. Exodus chapter nineteen. This is before the commandments are given. Verse one. Sermon. uh, Sorry, sermon uh, title: Save to sin. No more. And let me go ahead and hit this too. There's a takeaway. Good news. Our salvation frees us to obey all that God commands. It's a takeaway. Good news. Our salvation frees us to obey all that God commands. All right. Verse one of chapter 19. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped. In the wilderness, there Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. Alright, a couple things here. We're given a time marker. We're given a third new moon. So this is somewhere around seven weeks. So from the time they left Egypt, till now, it's been about seven weeks. In fact, we know that it's actually right at 50 days. And here's why we know that. Because we know that the celebration of the Passover is actually on the Hebrew calendar the very first, at the very beginning of the year. It's the start of the Hebrew year, the celebration of the Passover. And we know that there's a 50-day gap before the next celebration on the Hebrew calendar called Pentecost. And they call it Pentecost because there's a 50-day gap. And they set that 50 days because that was the amount of time it took to go from Egypt to Mount Sinai. So this was so special to the people of God that they set their calendars by it. The Passover event was so special, and so also was the giving of the law at Mount Sinai that they now call it Pentecost. By the way, the exact location of Mount Sinai, (laughs) you can get a great debate started. Uh, There's a lot of debate about it. Me Personally, my view is that it's about 50 days from Uh, where they left out of Egypt. That's just my view. Um, That was a joke, but we'll keep moving. Um, They they literally set up camp. They literally put up camp at the bottom of this mountain. And they are going to be there just shy of a year. In fact, if you want to mark chronology, and I think this is helpful, all the book of Exodus from this point here forward happens at the base of that mountain. Not only the rest of Exodus, all of Leviticus, setting, base of that mountain less than a year. The first ten chapters of the book of Numbers happens there. So for the people of Israel, most of what you read in uh, Exodus, all of Leviticus, and the first part of Numbers all happens in that little bit of time, just shy of a year at the base of Mount Sinai. They will get the Ten Commandments, they'll get the establishment of the priesthood, the establishment of the sacrificial system, the tabernacle, all of it will happen on the base of this mountain. Okay, keep moving. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, speaking to Moses, remember Moses went up, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, And tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to Myself. Key here, God is speaking to Moses, and Moses is coming to the people. And we get a glimpse at some very, very important things. Do not think this is just mere preamble. First, God calls them by their covenant name. Look there. He says, Thus you shall say to the house of who? Jacob. Who's Jacob's granddad? Abraham, who is the covenant with? Abraham, that's covenant talk. You shall say to the people to whom I have a covenant with, you shall say to them and tell the people of Israel, these are God's people. They are special to Him because He's got a promise on the line. They are a people of promise, and all who are in Abraham are blessed. All who have ever been in Abraham are blessed. And the only way to salvation is through the promise of Abraham found in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's one point. Second, God reminds them that He's a God of judgment. What do, what do we see there? He reminds them that He judged the Egyptians. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You know, we discussed when we looked at that, those sections that a major theme for the book of Exodus is that God will judge whom He will judge and God will have mercy on whom He will have mercy. He is a God who judges, but He's a God who... Who has mercy? See this third point. While, while God judged the Egyptians, He had mercy on the Israelites. And we see that. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles wings and brought you out. <laughs> he had mercy on them, not because they deserved mercy, but because of His promise. And listen to the detailed language. When you read that, if I read this sentence to you, you yourselves have seen how i bore you on eagle's wings and told you, name the book. I got a feeling you're not going for Exodus. I got a feeling you would go for something like Psalms. This is an Exodus. See how I've borne you on eagle's wings. What an amazing picture of grace. As you know, the, the, the eagle has an enormous wingspan. And, and the way that the eagle teaches the eaglet to fly is Mama Eagle pushes the eaglet out of the nest. Eaglet begins to fall. And then, until the eaglet learns to fly, Mama Eagle does what? Swoops down, massive wingspan. Eaglet lands and takes them on back up to the top, and they do it again. That is exactly how God described what he did to the people, uh, to the Israelites in Egypt. He says, This is what I've done for you. I was kind enough to lead you to utter helplessness, I let you get marched. Down to a point where on one side you had the Red Sea and on the other side you had the army of Pharaoh, and then I swooped in and I saved you. I pushed you out of the nest and I mercifully saved you. Friends, every person who has ever lived, hear this, every person who's ever lived will find themselves in this sentence. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings. Every person who has ever lived will either be like the Egyptians judged by God for their sin eternally, or they will be those whom God has borne on eagles' wings. The story of Christianity... It's that God, by His grace, loves you enough to push you out of the nest, let you fall to a point that you could get no lower. And that is that you realize the depths of your sin are so great that it takes the God of the universe to be murdered on a cross to save you. And then He swoops down and saves you and He carries you on eagle's wings. That is grace. And I didn't preach that to you from the book of Romans. I preached that to you from the book of Exodus before the giving of the Ten Commandments. That's the gospel. Brother Mark showed us repeatedly as he preached uh, his uh, uh, sermon uh, there in uh, Exodus that God did not simply save them by, to get them out of Egypt. Egypt. But he had a purpose. And he, he just emphasized this over and over. It was a good thing that you did. It's not like it was redundant. I mean, it was redundant, but it was good. Uh, but anyway. I saved you that you might worship. This is great. He, the sentence doesn't end there with the eagle's wings part. You yourselves have seen how I bore you on eagle's wings and praise God there's a conjunction there. And what? And brought you what? To where? Myself. That is the beauty of of God. He loves us enough not to just set us loose and save us from the dangers of hell. He loves us enough to save us to worship. He saved them for Mount Sinai. He saved them so He could show them who He was and manifest His glory to them and they may worship. Brothers and sisters, we have been saved by God, from God, to God. God says things like, eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. Come to me, the fount of living waters, and you'll never thirst again. Point one, God's people are called and saved by grace alone. This is fundamental to understanding the Ten Commandments. This is Exodus chapter 19. Okay, so we see, in one sentence, we get the gospel as plain and simple as you can get it. I bore you on eagle's wings, and I brought you to Myself. And it is so crucial that we understand this comes before the giving of the law. So at this point, the status of the people as saved by God and, as the pe- and, and already as the people of God is crucial. This comes before the giving of the law. Keep that in mind. Let's keep going. Into verse 3. Now therefore, that's there to point to all the stuff we've just talked about. Since all that's true, since, since the Gospel is what it is, I've saved you. I've brought you to Myself. If you will indeed obey My voice and keep My covenant, you shall be My treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is Mine, and, and you shall be to Me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. He's talking to Moses. He says, go tell them that. Okay? Everything is going to hinge on how you understand this if-then language. God says, if you will obey, then you will be my treasured possession. You see that in the text, right? That's from God. How do you understand that if-then language? What we do know is that God does not mean that if the Israelites obey, then God will save them. How do we know that? Because verses 2 through 3 already emphasize before this that they were saved not by anything that they did, but by what? By grace alone, by God alone. It cannot mean that if they do these works, then God will save them. This is important because some people describe the salvation found in the Old Testament is a salvation of works and obedience and the salvation of the New Testament is a salvation of grace. But realize that salvation as described in the Old Testament which we just read together is salvation by what? Grace. The gospel of the New Testament is the gospel of the Old Testament. God graciously calls, delivers, and transforms His people. That happened prior to any works of faith. That is, if He's already stated they're saved, it cannot be by their obedience to the Ten Commandments because the Ten Commandments had not already been given. So how do we understand this? Okay, got a couple of options. Since God has already declared the Israelites His treasured people, then it is impossible for this to mean, while that they are currently not His people, by obeying they will become His people. Let me say that again. If they are already His people, what He's saying cannot mean that by obeying they will become His people. So what does it mean? Well, I think it has to mean something like this. While already God's treasured people, by obeying, they will enjoy the privilege of being God's treasured people. That is, as the people of God already, God commands them to obey that they may flourish and enjoy the fruit of their covenant relationship And then he even goes on further. He says that they're going to be a kingdom of priests. Now, this does not just mean that they're going to have some priests among them. But it but it means, because we know here, he talks about all the world is mine. What is he saying? He says, Not only if you obey will you flourish, but if you obey, the nations will flourish. You will be a witness to the nations. That is the exact same place we are in today. You don't obey God so that you will be saved. No, you are saved so that you may obey God. And as you obey God, brothers and sisters, you will flourish. You'll enjoy your lives. And as we obey God, one of the things we do is we witness to a watching world, and they also will flourish as the gospel goes out. Point two God's people are saved by grace for good works. All right, keep trekking. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all the words that the Lord had commanded them. He he reads it all. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken will do it. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. If you know the history of Israel, in particular their track record of obedience, then there's a certain part of you that's thinking right now, that seems hollow, rushed, and perhaps even the wrong response. How can you, Israel, say that you've heard God and you're going to do all that? Well, the problem is that's not how the text portrays this. The, The text portrays this in no way negative, but is positive. In fact, it seems that this is the response of faith. They hear God's abundant grace and they say, we believe and we're going to follow. They hear of God's abundant grace and say, we believe and we are follow. Now if you say, well, it feels to me like they're making a commitment before they even know what they're being asked to commit to. The answer is, you're exactly right. But the problem is, what's wrong with that? That is, sure, they didn't know the full content of what they were Trusting to do, or going to have to follow and do, but they were convinced by who it is they were being asked to trust, God. And isn't that the same case for you and me today? Doesn't the gospel come to you in such a way that you hear it and you really can't at that moment understand all the things you're going to have to sacrifice and all the things it's going to cost you? You can't get that, but you don't care. God doesn't ask a person to convert by saying, I'm going to do absolutely everything right this second. I get it and I will. God says, I want you to see the grace that I have shown you. And trust me. And then what happens is as He changes your heart, the yes becomes, I say yes to you, and then I say yes to whatever. That's exactly what I think the people are saying here. I think it's a beautiful response. I think right here we've seen salvation was by grace and they enjoyed it through faith. And I would submit to you that is the gospel. It's the gospel of the Old Testament and it's the gospel of the New Testament. All right, verse 9. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. Keep, uh, uh, keep going. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Now go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, verse 11, and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people, and you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care. Do not go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they will come up the mountain. Let's go to verse 19. 19, 19. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in the thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. Okay, get the picture of this. So the people at the base, God says, get the people ready, I'm coming. I'm coming down. Now listen, you've got to listen, Moses. And they got to listen. When I come down there, you've got to mark of a boundary, and you've got to tell the people, do not cross that boundary. They will die. It'd be better for you to go ahead and stone them or shoot them because if they come up here, they are goners. Wow. It's the same God who said, I've carried you on eagle's wings. He's not saying, now let's come and let me just give you warm fuzzies for the rest of your life. He's saying, I am God. So he says, here we go. So God says, you are my people, I made you my people. The people hear it and they say, wherever you lead, I'll go. And then God says, behold your God. And folks, it says that it was flashing lightning. There was thunder. It was booming. The mountain was shaking. Can you imagine the fear and the awe of the people as they beheld their god then at the end of these verses we're told that while god was at the top of the mountain the people at the bottom he calls moses to ascend the mountain to go up where he is and then in verses 21 through 25 god sends moses back down he tells them to get the people ready warn them don't come too close you're going to die just repeat the warning and then something, as we enter chapter 20, something drastically changes. Very, very different. And God spoke all these words. By the way, I took um, enough of the allergy medicine to, to tranquilize a bull. And so, um, that's why I'm drinking I guess it dehydrates you. That's my, that's my story. But whoa. All right. Um, So if you all felt like you were hearing the thunder and seeing the lightning on Mount Sinai as I described, oh boy, was I ever. All right. Anyway, and God spoke all of these words saying, stop right there. What's different? What's different is we've heard God speak, but we always hear, and God said to who? Moses. Moses isn't speaking. God is speaking. If you, don't, if you don't catch this as you're uh, reading through it, you, you'll catch it at the end. You'll get that the people got. God is speaking. Completely different. It's a massive change. So then comes the Ten Commandments. But before we get the first command, we get a little preamble. And let me just ask you, Just just stop for a second. If I ask you, we need you... Now, you should be scared because this would be you writing Scripture and God said you'd die for doing that, so I wouldn't do it. But let's just say you had to. If I ask you to write a preamble for the Ten Commandments, what would you write as the preamble? Would it be something like this? Here is how good people act. Or you better obey the following commands... Or you better believe the following commands. Or if you want to find favor with God, you must. And then comes the rest of the Ten Commandments. Right? You would think something like that. Please hear the preamble to the Ten Commandments. It helps you understand the Ten Commandments. Verse 2. God is speaking. His voice is booming. The people are scared out of their wits. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Folks, it's the gospel. Before the first command comes, the gospel comes. His booming voice lands this truth. I'm the Lord, the only God, and I've saved you. Friend, if you are here today, this God will shake you and he can destroy you. He is so holy that the people had to mark off spots not to go too close. He demands your obedience. He hears the "uck of our culture, and he detests it. And yet he says, "I will save you." That is our God." Now, if that's the case, then you understand every other command like this. I have saved you, therefore. I have saved you, therefore. Let's read them. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is water Under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I'm visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Hear the first and the second command I have saved you, I claimed you. I am jealous for you and you are free to stop worshiping other gods and worship me alone. I've saved you. You must worship me through faith alone and not through any image or place or mere ritual. First and second command. Third command. You shall not Take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is with you in the gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth to see in all that is in them And he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. I have saved you. Therefore you must treat my name with respect and reverence. Not only should you not use it as an exclamation or vain utterance, But you shall not use my name as a way to get business deals or impress people or tell people I've led you to do something because you lack good reason to do it. I have saved you, therefore you should not work seven days a week. You can take a rest by enjoying the people of God and turning your full attention to the things of the kingdom. Fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother that the days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. I have saved you. Therefore, you are free to honor your parents. I bought you. You do not need to be shackled by the lies of our culture which tells you that rebellion is natural and permissible you can be let loose the chains that makes light of you treating your parents with disrespect. You are free to radically, radically obey and honor your parents. Christian students, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, there is no other area of your life that you can make a more radical stand for Jesus in our culture than how you treat your Parents. Nothing comes close when you honor your mom and dad because they are mom and dad. End of sentence. Not because they always make sense to you, not because they're cool, not because they're in on all the latest stuff, but because they are mom and dad. And because the God who owns you, who bought you, who loves you, commanded it, I'm telling you, your culture cannot make any sense of it. You're free to honor your parents. Oh, the freedom there. I just want to preach that message over and over and over. You're free. It's actually a nice time of life if you'll enjoy it. Man, if I could find 14 and 15-year-old Tim and beat the mess out of him, I would. Right? Like, come on. All you've got to do is listen. The rest of your life you're going to be having to make hard choices. You're going to be so confused half the time. And all you've got to do is just listen. You're free to do it because Jesus has saved you. All right, next one. Before I murder 15 year old Tim, all right, you shall not murder. I saved you, therefore, you need not hate. Given my radical grace, you should treat every single person with radical mercy and grace, no matter their race no matter their gender no matter their monetary worth or any marker that they claim for themselves you treat them with respect and you treat them with value because i saved you 14 verse 14 you shall not commit adultery i've saved you therefore you are free to enjoy sex within marriage Believer, you have been saved. You are free to stop sneaking around and looking at pornography. The God of the universe bought you. You have been saved. You can stop sleeping with your boyfriend. You have been radically delivered by God. You can stop sleeping with your girlfriend because I bought you. Verse 15, You shall not steal. I've saved you. Therefore, you can stop cheating your employer. i saved you. You don't need to cheat on your taxes. I've saved you. You must now give your tithe to the kingdom work verse 16 you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor I saved you therefore you can rest assured I know the truth and I can handle it therefore you are freed to not lie I bought you you need not lie Verse seventeen: You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey. I've been coveting Chad's donkey, so I got. I'm just playing. He doesn't have a donkey, so anyway, um, that's better than thinking we could put the bumper sticker on the donkey, though. That would be all right. Anyway. You, I, I, you shall not, I better start that over. Uh, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, his female servant, his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. God says, I've saved you. Therefore, you are freed to stop coveting your neighbor's stuff. You're free to stop coveting your neighbor's circumstances, his position, his lot in life. His talents. You're free to trust that if I saved you in the worst moment of your life, I will provide every other moment along. You're free. Point three. God's people are saved that they may obey. So why is the Ten Commandments a bosom friend? ten commandments a bosom friend to you because it tells us how we can now live as the people of God it frees us to live last point we're going to look at verses 18 through 21 God's people need a mediator God's people need a mediator so God speaks all this and remember you still got the very first of chapter twenty, God speaking, booming voice, right? Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. <laughs> Just you read that sometimes in the text, you're like, oh yeah, you know. The flashes of lightning, the sound of the trumpet when there was no trumpet, the mountain smoking. <laughs> I love it when people are like, we think we found Mount Sinai because it looks like it could be volcanic. Because it also looked like it has a bunch of trumpets. But anyway, we'll move on. Um, The people were afraid and they trembled and they stood far off. That is the response of a people who've heard from God. They were afraid, they trembled, and they stood far off. Catch that. How do they stand? What is their posture here? It's far off. Here's their response. Listen to this. This is so important. Verse into verse nineteen, you speak to us. They're talking to Moses. You speak to us, and we will listen. We'll, we heard. We heard it. We'll listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. <laughs> wow, that's their put to Moses. Now here's encouraging Moses. I don't think he would have made it as a lay counselor. Uh, verse twenty. Moses said to the people, Do not fear. Okay, so we don't have to be afraid. For God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. Only in the scriptures is that encouraging. Now, don't you be afraid. God came here that you would be afraid and stop sinning. <laughs> it's right there. 21. The people stood far off. This is so crucial. While Moses drew near to the thick dark darkness where God was, then the people are deathly afraid. They've encountered the holiness of God in his word. They hear the type of people God wants them to be. They consider who they currently are, and their conclusion is we need a mediator. And Moses' response is, God has not come to ruin you, but let you see His holiness that it may lead you to obey. Please stay with me. This is very helpful. This idea is almost completely foreign in Christian life today. That the fear of God is a right motivator for obedience is completely off the radar of much Christian teaching. Yet it is all across the pages of Scripture and it comes most explicitly out of the mouth of Jesus. Fear of God is often used by, throughout the Scriptures and certainly by Jesus as a motivation for obedience. So here is the message you've heard from Mount Sinai this morning. Stop sinning because He has freed us from slavery to sin. Stop sinning because you are already saved. But also, stop sinning, so you will not experience the fires of hell. That is across the pages of Scripture. The people realized they needed a mediator. And brothers and sisters, they were right. Unfortunately, there have been commentators who have written garbage, such as See, these people, had they had their minds right, they wouldn't have said, we need a mediator. They would have said, we want to sit down and enjoy God. And my response is, I bet you weren't there. They had the exact right response. We've heard. We get it. You've got to talk to us. We can't handle that. That is the story from the beginning and the end of Scripture. Sinful people will never experience God short of a mediator. Hear that. Write that on your brain. It's all in Scripture. You will never experience God short of a mediator. problem for the people is that Moses was their mediator. And they were happy to have him at the moment. I'm going to tell you what. They were loving to Moses in Exodus 20. The problem is Moses was flawed. Moses himself needed a mediator, and they got another problem: Moses dies. There's going to come a point when he can't be the mediator any longer, because he's pushing up daisies. Moses dies. But Moses points to our ultimate mediator. Christ Jesus, our Lord. Unlike Moses, he did not have to go up the mountain to be with God. Instead, he was God and was willing to descend to be with us. Unlike Moses, he did not break any of the commands he carried down, but he kept all the commands he carried up the mountain for us. Unlike Moses, He did not stand at the bottom of the mountain with the people and experience the immense power of God. Instead, Jesus, our mediator, He climbed Calvary's mountain and He willingly endured the immense power of God's judgment of our sin as it was rained down upon Him. And so we stand... Helpless people rescued on eagles' wings by loving God today. He is the exact same God. And so we stand at the bottom of a different mountain today. And we stand trembling. We stand trembling at the immense power of God's judgment as we behold our crucified Lord, we stand trembling at the lavish grace displayed by Christ's sacrifice. We stand trembling as we observe an empty tomb signifying our eternal mediator who sits on a throne and will never, ever leave. Let's pray.